I'm Alex Semenzato, and this is the SEMO Podcast. This episode is presented by Talent House. Talent House is a global community and collaboration platform that provides fantastic opportunities to creators around the world by enabling them to collaborate with major brands such as Warner Brothers, Bombay Sapphire, and Snapchat, to name a few. If you're a creator and you want to find out how you can get involved in these opportunities, check out talenthouse.com for more details. What's up, everyone? How are you? I hope you're doing well. I hope you're having a great day and you've had an even better week. In this week's episode, we are speaking to Noah Bernard, who is an experienced brand and creative director with over 25 years of experience delivering best-in-class product, purpose, and people marketing. Noah is a strong marketing professional skilled in trend analysis, design, apparel, footwear, technology, and FMCG. Noah has led creative teams at some of the most loved brands such as Samsung, Puma, and Adidas. In this episode, we discuss his journey from being a triathlete to designing running shoes with a career highlight sitting at the Olympics with Usain Bolt when he broke the 100 meters world record. And we look at brand marketing today, talking about culture and giving back, how brands have reacted to COVID-19 and their marketing strategies, who you are and how who you are plays into this world. Is there currently a drought of creativity? And is that CMO title dead? And what do we have to look for the future? And how are brands going to adapt from COVID-19? This is a really interesting and insightful discussion with lots of insight and opinions. And I really hope you enjoy this episode and look forward to seeing you next week. All right. Hi, Noah. How are you doing? Good. How are you, mate? How are you? I'm really good. Thanks. Um, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. Look forward to speaking and kind of getting under under the, the bonnet of all what Noah's about and, and kind of your past and, and looking up to the future. So thanks so much for your time. Um, as always, we like to start with some icebreakers. So let's get to it. Okay. Favorite color? Black. The destination you're most excited to visit? Um, I am, I've always wanted to go to, I've always wanted to do the Hellespont swim, which is the swim from, um, Europe to China. Uh, wow. it, it was the one that, uh, <laughs> Lord Byron used to uh, write about in one of his books. And so I have been for the past couple of years been, uh, wanting to do it. Um, and this year was going to, was supposed to be the year that I was going to do it. But, uh, obviously with everything that's going on, it looks like, uh, that might not happen now. So that would be, uh, that's uh, top of my mind probably right now because I just uh, spoke to the people that put on the swim to find out whether or not it was on and they were saying it's probably not going to happen. So, yeah. Oh, wow. Well, at least it's something to look forward to next year. But so how, how, how does that work? I mean, that sounds pretty crazy swimming from Europe to China. So, I mean, that's how long is it? It's um well it's it's I think it's it's, it's about uh, they say it's about two and a half K as the crow flies. But um, there's a massive current, so it winds up being about 4K. So you kind of got to make a big arc to, uh, to, to finish where you're supposed to finish so you don't wind up uh, somewhere <laughs> else in the world. So it starts in Turkey. Um, you, you fly into uh, Istanbul, and then you take a, a train, or, or not a train, but a car ride for a few hours to, I uh, can't remember the name of the city, but then starts there, and then you swim across. So. Um, right. It's every year they close the that shipping channel for a certain amount of time, specifically for this event. It's been going on for a long time. And uh, a friend of mine, I was a competitive swimmer as a kid, and a friend of mine did it a few years ago, many years ago, and came back. It's like, oh, mate, you got to do this someday. So it's been it's been top of my mind for a while now. Wow, that's a summit side thing. Analog or digital? Oof. Gosh, you know, I I would love to say analog because I feel like that's uh, it. It's richer and and more fulfilling. But having worked for Samsung and being involved in the digital world, I'd probably have to be honest and say I'm probably more digital. I, it, it, it's a real 
that one that one would tug at my heartstrings. I'm from, <laughs> I'm uh, I'm originally from Texas, so the analog side of the world is quite uh, prevalent when I go home. But uh, uh, yeah, I, I I I would have to admit I'm probably more digital. Yeah, I think everyone is, but yeah, it's starting to see that rise of whether it's vinyl record players or kind of that old analog stuff but yeah i think you're right it's the the capacity to do more with digital is definitely uh prevalent there's a book i read a couple last month called the death of analog have you have you seen, seen that uh-huh. um or maybe it's, no the rebirth of analog is what it's called i think it is but it's an incredible book where they talk about all the kind of rebirth of things that are happening in the analog world. And as I go through it, it's one of those things that's really bad for my personality because I'm like, yeah, I'll take up uh, vinyl collecting. Yeah, I'll, I'll get into uh, pressing my own uh, newspaper, you know, all this other kind of crazy stuff that I can get my mind caught into because I have that such a desire to hold on to that. But yeah, digital's digital's at the forefront. Yeah. Um, next question. You travel around the world in a boat. What is the name of the boat? Uh, well, I mean, I mean, the, the obvious one, since my name is Noah, would be the Ark. Oh, uh, there you go. <laughs> as growing up as a kid, that would probably uh, obviously be the one that, uh, uh, you know, the first thing that came to mind is the Intrepid, and I have absolutely no idea why, but I'm going to go with the Intrepid <laughs> instead of the Ark. So that's a good name. Sounds yeah. quite, uh, yeah. <laughs> you, you, you know where you're going with the Intrepid. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And lastly, a quick fun fact about you. Uh, a quick fun fact about me would be that um, I once uh, hit on Maria Sharapova <laughs> at Wimbledon without knowing that it was Maria Sharapova, as well as. I once sat on a plane for four hours with Matthew McConaughey, not knowing it was Matthew McConaughey. So my fun fact about me is I often meet people that are quite famous and have zero ideas. <laughs> That's a good fun fact. <laughs> we would love to kind of learn a bit more about your story uh, and how did you get to where you're at now? So, you, you know, you've had quite a colorful career working for major brands such as Puma, Adidas and Samsung, kind of always wearing a brand hat. But take us a little bit, uh, back to old school Noah, what were you doing, kind of what's been your journey to date? It'd be great to hear. Yeah, well, that's, uh, that is a journey in and of itself. Um, I, I, was a, I was a competitive swimmer um, most of my life, um, and then uh, I quit swimming about midway through my college career um, and started getting into running and cycling and stuff like that. And one of my college coaches was a um was a triathlete before triathlon was even a thing back in the in the in the early 80s or the the late 90s or early 90s the late 80s and um so i started doing that and i got really into it and after i graduated university i moved to austin texas because that was kind of a place where everybody trained and it was kind of a hub for the sport and i started working in a running shoe store um trying to be a professional triathlete and doing some running stuff, uh, triathlon stuff at the same time and working in the store. And um, through that, I um, met a man who ran the store, who's still my mentor to this day, uh, who um, was quite into biomechanics and how to make shoes and all this other kind of stuff. And um, I started working with him, helping him to make shoes and manipulate shoes and then all the shoe companies started kind of coming to us and started asking for help about how to construct shoes in a better way and then we got asked by runners world magazine to write the shoe review for runners world magazine um and because of that all the shoe companies decided to be quite close friends with us um so they started flying us to Big, big sporting events like Boston Marathon, New York Marathon, Honolulu Marathon, you know, and they we, we would do shoe reviews with them and do shoe schools with them and stuff like that. And one day I was at uh, one of the events and one of the senior executives for Nike and I had built up a relationship and he said, when you're done being a professional triathlete, what are you going to do? And I went, ooh, that's a really good question. 
I hadn't thought that far in advance. I thought I was going to be able to pay my rent with uh, bicycle tires and <laughs> nutritional bars the rest of my life. Um, and he said, hey, you know, if you, um, if you ever want a job at Nike, um, you can come work for us. We'd love to have you. And so um, I finished my career in triathlon inauspiciously, just kind of, it didn't really go anywhere. And so I, I um, went to go work for Nike. I started off as a, as a tech rep, um, which Nike they call Ekins, which is Nike spelled backwards because it's your job to know Nike forwards and backwards. Um, and I was quite into that. So I, I used to go around and give, um, you know, re- talks to shoe stores and give talks to high school kids and, and uh, you know, put on events for Nike and stuff like that. I was kind of the, you know, the influencer marketer of Nike before influencer marketing was, was, a, was around, but there was, a whole host of us. I think at the time there was about 30 of us all over the U.S. and now they have loads of them all over the world. So I did that for a few years um, and it was an amazing opportunity. Um, and then I got asked by a company called Cliff Bar, which is a nutritional bar company to go work for them to launch one of their women specific bars. And while I was working there, I wound up doing a lot of sports marketing, working with athletes, um, you know, Lance Armstrong and, and, you know, climbers and, uh, you know, runners and everything like that, kind of supporting them and their needs throughout the day. And I did that for a little while. And then um, I took a break and traveled across the U.S. Uh, just wanted to do that my whole life. So I took, took some time and traveled across the U.S. Then I came back and I started my own sports marketing company. Um, doing sales and sports marketing for cycling brands and running brands. And then I got into kind of fitness brands and nutritional brands. And I did that for a while. And one of the brands I picked up was a brand called Pearl Izumi, which is a cycling brand. And they asked me if I would come be their head of product marketing for the running division that they were just starting off. So I went to work for them and then worked for them for a few years and started their running division for them. Um, working with factories to build product and design stuff with them. And then I got pulled into um, Puma, which was an amazing opportunity. Um, At the time, it was a brand that was kind of resurging, kind of finding its feet again back into the industry. And I got pulled into them to run their running division originally and then wound up being the business director for their olympics group for a few years um so had the incredible honor of helping get usain bolt on board and uh work with usain bolt on designing some of his apparel and shoes and um was actually in the beijing stadium in 2008 when he broke the 100 in the 200 meter world record uh wearing a pair of shoes that uh, i had worked on which was a you know probably one of the highlights of my career a sex to uh tommy smith who was the Olympic gold medals from 1968 with the black glove. And on the other side was Dick Fosbury. So it was a, you know, wow. got a <laughs> sure that in my, uh, in my office. Um, and I worked for those guys for a few years. Um, they moved me to Germany um, and I was head of innovation for their team um, in Chemnitz, Germany. And then a friend of mine worked at Adidas and said, um, that there was a job that was in their lifestyle division, the originals division to run their footwear division, their product marketing for footwear. So I moved over to that job and did that for a few years and then wound up, wound up um, running the originals division for apparel and footwear for a few years. And then uh, I moved here to London 10, 11 years ago. Um, When I moved here, I took a job with, Hush Puppies, I don't know if you know Hush Puppies shoe brand, uh, kind of a classic. Whenever you say Hush Puppies, people smile and then they go, oh my gosh, I had those when I was in school. Um, I was brought over to try and reinvigorate. Yeah, no, just an iconic, I mean, it was such a weird thing because as an American, like, I knew of Hush Puppies because it's quite an American brand, but I didn't know people's affinity for it. So, but when I found out about the backstory of it, I thought that'd be a fun gig. So I came over here to try and reinvigorate Hush Puppies and wound up working for them um, for a company called Wolverine. And they had 
they had another brand called Sperry Top Cider, and they had another brand called Keds. And I worked for them for a few years. And then I, uh, I met a guy who worked at Samsung and hit it off uh, with him. He and I were just having chats and stuff like that. And he said to me, have you ever thought about getting out of sneakers and clothes and all that other kind of stuff? Um, and I, to be honest with you, it was not something I'd really thought about because I really enjoyed what I was doing. Um, but I went and met with them and, you know, talked about, you know, the impact that they can have on the world and the impact that they can have on society and how they can, you know, make changes in a moment's notice and really kind of make things, um, you know, make the world a better place and a different place. And that, that really kind of drew me into it and really cool brand. Um, incredible background, incredible story, incredible network of people working there and some really great people working there. So I took that and I worked for them for a few years. And just recently, I've now taken some time off and um, and now kind of working, I'm working with the company that is looking uh, to create reduced risk um, products for tobacco smokers. Um, so um, I'm doing that right now, kind of working with them to try and uh, maximize their brand and kind of, you know, take something that is, uh, you know, got a unique opportunity to, again, to make an impact on the world and, and, and do things in a different way and different thinking and kind of helping them to build their brand up and, and get involved in that. So, yeah, it's been a journey, man. It's a <laughs> <laughs> nice. It's been a crazy one. Awesome. And, um, so kind of rewinding a bit at that time, I mean, obviously being a, a, an athlete, uh, obviously you're so passionate in, in terms of the sport and what you're doing. Like, how do you think that kind of transcended into then you getting on the brand side with, you know, some of these sports brands? Was it just because you had, you know, an understanding of the product and things, or do you think it was more than that? No, I mean, I mean, I was extremely benefit. I mean, I was extremely lucky and it was a huge benefit to me to start my career off at Nike because Nike, you know, I think some people call, call, call them robotic and, you know, the people that work there are stormtroopers is what I hear a lot from people, but they, you really embody the brand in a certain way. There's a, just a belief system that comes along with it. And I think the people that are successful at places like Nike are the people that have kind of that understanding of the passion that sports or the passion that the product can have. The, the guy who's my mentor, Paul, he used to say to me, um, just remember, it's not just about, you know, you know, the shoes and stuff like that. You're helping people to achieve their dreams. And that could be a dream that is you know, being world champion for, you know, the marathon, or that could be a dream of, I just, you know, to get it, to get up off the couch because I'm, you know, I'm living an unhealthy life. And I really, that, that really resonated with me. And that really stuck with me that, you know, um, yes, we're not curing cancer and I'm not saying it's that big, but you know, that living that passion and living that, you know, helping people to, to realize their dreams um, I think is a super important part of of working at places like Nike or Puma or Adidas, um, and the culture in those places. You know, it, it, you you get that sense. Um, so I think my it wasn't that my it wasn't so much my participation in sports, but it's it was my passion for sports. I mean, I have always uh, been very very passionate for sports. My my father played uh, professional. American football and professional American baseball. So it was kind of ingrained in me and, you know, and, and we would, you know, we would go watch, you know, my father used to say if, if they called us fly screwing, screwing a sport, we would go watch it, you know? So we, we just loved anything that was sport related. And so that was always kind of built in me and my, my passion for, for sports. So I think um, people that are successful in brands are the people that really kind of stand behind the brand. Um, it's a lot, easier i think in sportswear brands because there's so much passion that you can have behind it um but you know it's a big part of being successful in those places yeah and then, i mean there definitely are like you know you can list off the top of your head some of these successful companies that have such a fantastic kind of brand equity amongst people whether that be nike or apple or, or samsung or puma or, or adidas um why do you think those brand you know it's like why why those brands like if because for me it, it kind of you know if you're if you're tapping on human emotion and 
kind of championing kind of bigger values and things like that. It's, it's weird that, you know, you think it, that's kind of easy to do, you know, face value, but why are some of these brands so much better at doing it than others? I think because they're, this word gets thrown around a lot and I think it's a really challenging word because I, I think it's because they're purpose driven and I don't mean purpose driven in the sense that they are, you know, they are trying to promote, you know, equal rights or they're trying to solve sustainability because I think when you say purpose, a lot of people, that's where their mind goes to. For me, purpose driven is that, you know, they're, you know, it's the kind of that classic, why did they exist? What was their, you know, what, why did they start doing uh, what they started doing, you know, and, and Nike, you know, Bill Bowerman's whole thing was um, anybody who's, um, you know, uh, got two legs and two arms is an athlete, you know, anybody can be an athlete, um, you know, and since then, we've obviously proven that wrong with some of the Paralympics is, you know, that it doesn't just require that, but anybody can be an athlete. And I think that that purpose has always been at the core of who they are. And I think that's why people resonate towards them because a lot of what everything that they do or what they talk about or what they represent that purpose is at the core of what they do and i think that's why some of these brands are becoming you know so powerful and i think that's why people gravitate towards them because you know you know what their purpose is you know what they're about you know what they're trying you know good or bad, whether you like them or you don't like it, you still have that core component of it. And I think that's super, super, um, you know, the super important. I think that's the reason why these brands are so successful. I think a lot of these brands that are out there that don't really know what their purpose is or can't really find that core of what their purpose is. Those are the ones I think that are, you know, as we're seeing are, are going to struggle or continue to struggle, even with COVID-19, you know, you see these brands that are kind of trying to latch onto this moment as that's their purpose and it feels very inauthentic. You're like, Oh dude, come on. Like that's, that's, I don't, that makes me uncomfortable where some of the brands that are just staying true to what their purpose is in the context of COVID-19, I think are doing a phenomenal job. And Nike, you know, I'm a massive fan of Nike um, as well as all the other brands I've worked for, but you know, you know, those brands I think are doing it quite well. Hmm. What was the shift like? So obviously you hadn't, most of your experience working for sportswear brands and and things like that was was it was it easy or was it difficult making that shift from from sports to technology when you moved over to Samsung? I I think the the difficult part was the learning curve for me of of learning kind of that world, um, which is is very extremely fast paced. It's it's you know it's 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 highly competitive. Not that you know the fashion world or the sportswear world isn't, but it's it's a different kind of competition. I think learning that was the the difficult part for me at the start. I don't think the transition was that difficult because you know moving into Samsung, Samsung, you know, was you know was trying to make that emotional connection or trying to make that connection and still trying, it still is trying to with the consumer. So kind of taking my history and my experience and applying that to Samsung wasn't very difficult because it's, you know, it's, it's, it's about finding that purpose and making that connection and, and unpicking those kind of beautiful stories. You know, the, the wonderful thing about Samsung working in a place like that is, you know, what, what people don't know about that is, you know, that, that, that company was started by one guy in a small, you know, village in South Korea, who his whole purpose was to feed and water his community. And then, so he started buying rice and then he started feeding his community and then the and, 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 and then, you know, 20 years later, he's making TVs and then 40. So that kind of purpose of community, which mm-hmm. is massive in, in South Korea was at the core of it. So, it was easy to kind of take those stories and apply those, you know, um, and, and think about, you know, what's the purpose and what's their why and, and start to build some of the kind of the, the, the thinking behind that. Um, it was, it was, it was a very weird transition for me because, um, you know, it was a massive shift, but I don't think it was that difficult for me because I think it was, you know, very similar to some of the other brands I'd worked for, some of the other things that were going on in places I worked for. Mm. Can, you, can you give us a, an example of a campaign or, or something that you were pretty proud of? At Samsung? Yeah, or any, any brand. Um, I mean, 
at Samsung, I think kind of being a part of the do what you can component um, that came out a few years ago, um, I was quite pleased and, and quite proud of being a, you know, a part of that. You know, the, the beauty of Samsung is that, um, you know, there's a lot of people that work on things. So it's kind of, again, that community of people working on things to make something, but being a part of that, you know, coming to life and seeing the different ways that people could iterate that, whether it be, you know, the U.S. guys you know, doing it with Casey Neistat or, you know, the, um, you know, the India team, like really kind of building that into, um, again, the sense of community and, and, you know, being a part of that and seeing how that kind of work can be so global and can really kind of impact people. I think that I was very proud of that, you know, from a, from a bigger sense of my career, you know, other things being a part of the Olympic games in 2008, for Puma was, I was proud of that, but it was more like living a dream, you know, yeah. <laughs> it was more that, you know, always wanting to be an Olympian or, you know, always wanting to, you know, be a part of that and finally get a chance to be a part of it. I, it maybe it's proud is not the word, but it was just more of a kind of living the dream. And then, you know, Adidas was an incredible place to work. Um, and I was a part of relaunching the Stan Smith, um, and that was one another one of my big career highlights because I got a chance to spend a lot of time with Stan. He's a, just a, one of the best dudes on the planet, and kind of taking something that was iconic that had you know kind of fallen off the radar a little bit and kind of bringing it back to life was really cool as well. So that was a, a an awesome project to work on. Really cool project to work on. Awesome. Um, going into these different brands. Uh... Well, kind of just you know from from your own perspective what you know do you have a a certain kind of recipe or process in terms of building up a great brand what would what would you describe your kind of creative or strategic process as you know what are those steps that you take to kind of identify and deliver on some of these great projects you worked on my uh, one of my really good friends who works at an agency um said to me in a meeting, and I kind of make fun of him every now and then, but still, uh, it still resonates with me, is, is being kind of an archaeologist, where you go and you dig for those stories and you dig for those nuggets of things, where yeah. you kind of pull out like the story of the guy who started the company, who, you know, wanted to, you know, water, his feed and water, or you go out, you know, not that I did, but you go find those stories about, you know, Bowerman or, Phil Knight and stuff like that. And I think going and digging out those stories and kind of finding those gems is, is, is a major part of my process. Like, because I think those stories help to define, you know, you know, what your ethos is, what your purpose is, you know, what you're battling against, you know, what's your tension, what's your, you know, who's your enemy or what's your enemy, you know, is your enemy, you know, Nike, their enemy's apathy, you know, so who, what are you battling against? I think going off and kind of doing those, you know, sounds stupid, but archaeological digs of finding, you know, those kind of stories and then building from theirs, from those makes it more authentic. It makes it more real. And I think it makes it more fruitful. So my, my, you know, I like to go find those things. I like to go dig for those things. I like to, you know, read about you know, read the, read the, read the literature and the books and the, and, and, you know, dig through the internet of stuff that you won't find on the corporate website. You know, you got to go find those stories that, that are quite interesting. And then taking those and kind of honing those to build what, you know, I, I think is important, kind of a brand persona, like, who are you? Like, what do you look like? What do you, how do you talk, you know? And, and, you know, what do you stand for? What do you, what are your values? All those kinds of things and, and take it like you're a person and build it that way. I, I think building a brand persona is, is a really good thing because then it informs campaigns or it forms work and everything like that. But until you do that dig and you find out what the brand is about, or you find those stories, you can't really construct that persona. So for me, it's going and, and digging for those gems or digging for those stories. And, uh, you know, mentioning those, those kind of stories, um, you, you see a lot of kind of brands championing micro communities or subcultures or uncovering those stories, as you, as you mentioned, do you think there is potentially a danger for, for some of these brands to kind of take these subcultures into the mainstream? Absolutely, mate. 
because they have no they have no reason to be in those subcultures. They have no like they're 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 tapping into they're they're appropriating culture. They're just tapping into culture and taking from it. They're not like there's there's no reason for them to be in it. And I think that's you know that's that's where these really good brands know how far they can stretch and how far you know where they shouldn't go. They 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 true to who they are. You know some of these companies that are going in to these subcultures cultures and 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 trying to make it like they have a voice or a reason to exist in there i think the consumer is way smarter than a lot of these brands think they are um they may not know the terminology and they may not know what's coming through but they know the kind of the feeling or the emotion that they get when these brands tap into it, or like oh dude that's that's really uncool or really un- inauthentic or just makes me uncomfortable and i, I feel like a lot of brands and i think it'll be interesting to see where brands go after kind of this space because we're kind of you know wiping the slate clean on a few things and and i'm hoping that it forces brands to kind of you know stand figure out what they stand for and who they are like you know what's how are you going to go forth into the world now that the world has changed in a massive way and i think that's a really interesting thing i I see some of these brands like putting on concerts and stuff like that. And I'm like, dude, you have nothing to do with music or like, but you have so many other things that you bring to the world. Why aren't you, why aren't you engaging in those things? Um, Cause that whole kind of passion point subculture marketing is quite easy. Like that's some strategist sat in an agency going, Hey, the kids are into this or this, yeah. you know, kids like this, you guys should do that. But it's, it's not, it's, it's not easy. It's, it's low hanging fruit. It's not an easy way to kind of like actually build a brand and what's your purpose and why do you exist? And why would you even play in that space? What's your voice in that space? What do you, what do you even bring to that space? Um, other than, you know, some guy says, oh, my, my nephew likes this or thinks this is cool. You know, like it just doesn't play well. Yeah. And I think you're right. I think, uh, <clears throat> you know, brands, especially sports brands, you know, I think there is a bit of a gray area, a fine line because it's, you know, you don't want to be appropriating culture, but some could say that, you know, some of these subcultures or these communities, you know, would love the support of some of these brands. Uh, and I think that's where it's like, okay, well, when is it okay or not okay? And, you know, if it is okay, then, you know, you, you hope that that brand is kind of ensuring there's a long-term strategy to be part of, you know, that cult- subculture or that positioning to support it. It's not a drop in the ocean, as you mentioned, just to kind of support a kind of flash campaign for that month or whatever. Yeah. And I think that that's a major difference is if you're going to go into that space, find out why you're going to go into that space. And what are you going to do to make that space better? My Again, I'm my friend who works in an agency. This is not mine, so I can't claim it. He has this term called cultural honesty bar. If you take from culture, you've got to give back. And I think that's a beautiful way of saying that there's a lot of brands that are just taking from it and not giving back to it. And the ones that are doing a very good job of it are kind of taking and giving back to it. I think that's, you know, I think that's, that's where you get to some interesting spaces and some, you know, some, some authentic work. And, and in some spaces, the culture comes to the brand and then that's fine. I think it's, it's when the, when the brand kind of just taps into it for the purpose of a campaign or for the purpose of a, you know, a, a, a segment or, a, or, or an archetype or something like that. I feel like that's where it gets a bit uncomfortable. Hmm. What are your thoughts on how, Brands are currently reacting to COVID nineteen. You know, it's hard to see quite a few uh, of literally like people copying and pasting the same kind of short emotive films of empty streets and people walking and things like that. I mean, what what are your thoughts? It's quite funny because I can see the inside of companies like people going, "Shit, we've got to do something." <laughs> yeah, got to do like we've got to we've got to show that we care. Like we've got to show that we're in there with everybody. So they're putting out, you know. I don't know if you've seen that YouTube video of like every yeah. ad in the world that looks exactly the same, you know? Um, That's the thing though. Is it, is it like, it's like doing, it's like almost like doing it to be part of that kind of PSA or are you kind of almost saying, you know, just don't do anything. Like almost like sit in your hands, let it ride over. Like what, what is the answer or, or is it there not one? 
I think the answer is like, is finding out what you're, you know, who you are and how you play into this world. Like, I think that's, that's, there's the brands that are, I know you're going to ask me for examples, I'm going to blank on it, but the brands I think that are doing really, really good work are they're going, okay, this is, this is where we are. This is the space that we're in. This is our brand. This is what we do. And this is who we are. And they're finding that kind of Venn diagram of the place in the middle where they can play in the voice that they can have in that space. So, you know, here's what's happening with consumers. Here's what our brand is. And here's the, you know, the world that is COVID-19. What's that space in the middle that we can, you know, that we, that, that we can play in a relevant way, but also is true to who we are that people will go, okay, I get that, you know? And I, I think the brands are doing that quite well um, are the ones that will, you know, come out of this doing, you know, no, not better, but they're, they're the ones that are going to come out of this um, with everybody kind of reaffirming what they are and who they are and kind of understanding why, um, you know, who they why they did the things that they did during this, where other brands, you know, every day you see some kind of like piece on the news where some brand X did this and there's a huge backlash. Mm. And nine times out of 10, the backlash is because people are going, why are you like, what purpose do you have? Or why are you playing the space? Or why are you doing these kinds of things versus when other brands are doing it? They're going, yeah, okay, that's, yeah, I get it. Like you're a brand that does this and this is what you're going to do. And this is how you're going to do it. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think it's just, again, it goes back to that. Like, you know, who are you as a brand? What's your brand persona? What's your why? Why do you exist? And then you find the, you know, the creative and cool places to, and clever places to play in that space in relation to what's happening right now. Yeah. Um, not COVID related, but I guess it highlights it. Um, you know, historically, especially the last few years, people have been kind of claiming there is a creativity crisis and that kind of traditional ad land has lost its superpowers. Do you agree? No, I don't. I think there is, um, I don't think there's a creativity crisis. I think there's a bottleneck between the creativity, the data and the marketing directors, managers, CMOs. I think the creativity is out there. I mean, you can see it every day from just people who are just being creative, creating, you know, posters or creating videos or creating, you know, all these mad things that are happening out in the world. I think the so that I don't think there's a, I don't think there's a, you know, a drought of creativity. I think that there's a lot of data and some creativity and there's a group of people in the middle that are getting too nervous about letting creativity flow because of the data is telling them something different. I think the data has become, instead of the data being a guide to making decision, the data has become the de facto thing to look at to make decisions. And I, I think for me, years ago in my career, I think you would look at the data and go, okay, that's going to help me to inform making a decision. Or I think a lot of people are looking at the data and saying that data is telling us to make that decision. And I think that's a huge shift in what's happened over the past few years. Like the mining of the, the data is important. And don't get me wrong, I think it can definitely help, help us to make better decisions. But it's actually dictating the decisions versus helping us to guide, to guide the decisions. And that, that I think is the biggest shift for me. I mean, there's, there's, you know, there's loads of cool things happening out there. Um, and a lot of the people that are doing a lot of the cool stuff, I think are either just, you know, looking at the data and kind of, you know, going, saw the data, let's do this. Or they're looking at the data and saying, that's helping us to make a decision or it's kind of just happening serendipitously. But I do think the data it's not the data. It's not the creativity. I think it's the people in the middle that are too afraid to make decisions or bold decisions or are letting their thought process be mined too much by the data. Yeah. Yeah. And then that kind of goes on to like, what do you think the future role of, you know, of a CMO is that kind of under threat? I mean, is it more, is it going to evolve more from a brand creative standpoint or is it literally data is becoming so saturated now? That's the focus. Yeah, I think it's kind of the cool thing to say that the CMO is dead right now because <laughs> I, I can just go through my career of like CMOs that I've had to work with and work for. 
And the ones that are brave and the ones that are making tough decisions, they know that they have a responsibility to a, you know, a, a net turnover or revenue or, or whatever those things may be or a P&L, but they're willing to make some brave moves. And I think the smart ones are the ones that know, um, you know, there's some moves that you have to make um, because there is the pressure to manage a P&L, but there's other moves that you have to make to push the brand forward. So I think the current format of CMO probably would be, um, you know, might be a little bit nervous about their future. But I think if we start finding kind of, you know, the CMOs that, that think differently are, are a lot more brave and are willing to push and to push back, um, I think those guys will come back around. I think they're out there. Um, I mean, they're definitely out there. The dude and that guy's making bold, bold, bold decisions, you know, like rotting, rotting Big Macs as an ad. That's fucking, excuse me, that's absolutely insane. You know, like that, that's a, that no, no salesperson on the face of the planet or no, like, would go, you know, can you imagine the conversation in the room? Like, wait, you're going to show one of our products rotting? Yeah. Like dudes would be, everybody in the room would be like, you can't do that. Everyone thinks that our burgers are, you know, dot, 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 dot. And the guy's going, no, you know, we've got all this other work going on. Let's do some of these bold things. You know, like, and, and I think that's, that's where some of the CMOs, you know, maybe have gotten themselves a bit stuck is that, you know, not every decision has to be brave, but some of the decisions have to be brave, you know, and swing the pendulum from one side to the other. So I don't know if it's... Do you like that? that? Did you like that um, Burger King ad? I loved it, mate. I thought it was brilliant. <laughs> I mean, it's just like... But people, I, I, saw, I saw some of the commentary, because, I mean, I loved it, and I think, you know, people that, like, it's it's not a rotting Big Mac, it's the fact that, obviously, they don't have additives, and, and so if people can connect the two, that is, it's genius. But, uh, you know, there was a lot of people in, in Adland being like, oh, it's a, it's, an, it's, a, it's a piece of creative, just for the creative industry kind of thing, but it's like... I've, I don't know. I still kind of liked it. I think even people that weren't in the industry, they would still look at that and be like, that's clever. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I would disagree with anybody who said it was just an ad for, for creative people. I think it's, you know, it's an interesting, cool way of, of articulating that you don't have preservatives. I mean, I, I think that's a really yeah. interesting thing. <laughs> yeah. that, that kind of work, you know, that kind of work is, you know, it's, it's pushing things things out a little bit and I, I like that kind of stuff but then i also know that you've got to have the you know the ads that are like you know our burgers great you know that yeah. aren't as kind of brave and shocking and stuff like that but I, I do think that everybody's getting you know a bit cautious about uh that and i do think that the again the data you know i'm sure if somebody were to like data mind a rotting burger you know everyone would go oh, the data tells us that you know people don't like rotting burgers you can do a rotting burger you know like that that versus somebody going yeah i know but this is a great idea like we need to do this because of somebody this 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 and this and, and i i don't think the data is the problem i think it's the people in the middle that are utilizing data and how they utilize the data to either guide their decisions or dictate the decision but i love that i love you know there's there's ones that you see you're just like that's brilliant that's really, really good. Um, I, think, I think it's great. I, Maybe. Yeah, I think you're right, though, because it's, like, it's just, it just reinforces the power of human creativity, you know? And I think there's like, I think in iRobot, there's something similar where it's like Will Smith's talking to the robot and then like, you know, he's saying no because that's what the data says and that's kind of, you know, that should be the right answer. But, you know, human and kind of emotional intelligence can play you know, in it as well. And that's where you get some of the best stuff is that it, it doesn't always have to be, you know, binary, right? So it's it's interesting to to see that as an example, I think what you just mentioned. Yeah. What um what's got you excited for the future? What's uh what are you curious about at the moment? Oh man, I'm so curious to see how this world changes after this. I'm so excited. Do you, do you think, what's your initial thoughts? Are you thinking kind of big changes like from the world and from the way brands interact and things like that? Or what's, what's your initial thoughts? I, I don't see massive changes in the way is that brands interact. I think the biggest changes will be in the ways in which brands work and how people work. I think that's the mayor, you know, you know, I, I think the, 
I just don't know how anybody could go, any companies or people could go through all of this and think thing, think things like nine to five is relevant still. Yeah. Think things like, you know, getting, you know, I'm from Texas and I'm from a very small town in Texas. So um, getting on a tube with millions of people is just shocking to me. You know, like I just, I just, I find it, I, you know, when I first moved here, it was interesting and exhilarating, but now I'm like, wow, this is just really weird. Like this is yeah. just crazy. And I think brands or companies will have to look at, you know, like how they utilize their people. And, and, and I, I, I like the fact that I hope that this, this, um, giving people the, the vision that you can trust people, you can trust people to get things done. You can trust people to do things in a certain way. You can trust, um, you know, the, your HR department to be hiring the right kind of people that <coughs> can manage their own schedules and that can manage their own lifestyles and things like that. Like, I feel like that's, you know, one of the things that I, I'm excited to see how it comes out. And I also think it just will challenge, you know, the way people think about um, how we get to creative, like how do we get to these spaces, you know, this you, you know, you're seeing these Zoom calls with 30 people on it, you know? And in my mind, when I sit there and I look at that, I think about like, what if this was, what if this was like a creative workshop where you had a dude who was in Japan and the dude that was, you know, in South Texas and a guy in London and a woman here and a woman here and a guy here and a woman here. And they were all working in that way. Like they were riffing in that way or they were thinking in that way. Like what? What would you get out of that versus just having kind of like one perspective from one part of the world and then that gets handed over to that guy that gets, you know, yeah. put that perspective in. Like every time I get on these Zoom calls, I'm just like quite excited by the fact that, again, maybe it's because I'm from a small town in Texas, but that I'm talking to a guy that's across, halfway across the world and we're, you know, we're building on something and we're thinking about something and we're kind of, you know, I, I just feel like that's that's such a, an interesting opportunity and such a ripe space for people to be playing in, you know, and, and also just, you know, less congestion on the roads, you know, people, you know, the first time in 150 years that, you know, they discover a bear in Northern Spain today, you know, like there's, there's a reason why these dudes are coming out. Like, yeah, yeah. Like, so can we just think about that? Like, is your, uh, is my morning commute on the, on the Northern line, five days a week and all the stuff that I have to go through and all the stuff that I produce when I do that more important or less important than a bear in Northern Spain, you know, like, cause, cause I could easily not get on that tube and I could save a lot of time, money and effort and impact. Um, if we just kind of change our thinking and then maybe we can have both of these things, which is, which is, you know, kind of where, uh, I'm hoping things change, but, God only knows. Or yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, I think even for myself, just uh, like I've been fortunate enough to be set up on Google drive and things like that. So we're not like a big legacy type business, but um, you know, having to be forced from working from home, it, it's been besides kind of catching up with your buddies in, in real life, like in your colleagues, it's been awesome. Like I, I don't think I've worked harder in my life. It's been crazy. You know, getting up just so productive, you're kind of in your own space and you can, I don't know. I think you, there's a lot of distractions in, a, in an office space, which can be good or bad. But I think, uh, you know, especially for like deep, deep work or big presentations or things like that, just to zone out and just work. I mean, you get probably the amount, same amount of work in like three days done in one day. What I found is crazy. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more, man. I just find it. I just hope other. I just hope it starts to like. Remember those books like from a few years ago, like the. 20 hour work week and stuff like that, a four day, like all those kinds of things that people are like, you know, these, these arbitrary notions of that you have to be somewhere from nine to five, or you have to do this from these days to these, this day to this day. I think this whole highly unfortunate and, you know, devastating situation that happened. I'm just hoping that people kind of look at things and go, you know what, there is, there is another way to do this. There, there definitely is another way to do this. Like how can we figure out how to do this in a more meaningful way and in a way that's going to be better for all of us than just, you know, a few of us. And 
ways of working, communication, all those kinds of things. I think this whole thing has really kind of thrown a mirror up to all of us to go, you know, what are my values? What am I, you know, what, what's important to me? What's not important to me? What's my authentic self? You know, all that kind of stuff to figure out <coughs> how we can make changes or how we can make things better going forward. Yeah, 100%. Um, what practical tips would you give someone that is kind of feeling stuck? Like, how do you come unstuck with ideas? I think it is a big driver of of creativity i think i i think again going back to like offices and and all these other things like i think you've got to find ways to get moving and and get moving can be in multiple formats of whatever you find ways of getting moving like you know like in the sports world you know it's it's the flow that you get when you're in the zone or whatever and i think the reason why you get into those spaces is when you're in motion and and um, you know in those in those times of when you're kind of stuck, my my ultimate thing is for even teams or people I've worked with is just go you know go take a holiday or you know go for a walk or just get up and move like do something to get yourself in motion because that's just going to get those cogs working and get those things and it also could potentially relax you to open up space you know the synapses that aren't snapping in your head at that point. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm I'm a big, big, big believer in motion. Um, lots of people hate my walking meetings, but um, oh yeah, I love that. that <laughs> I I really like that. I think that's so cool. What well, um, do you have? Kind of, how do you keep productive in the week? I mean, you obviously mentioned motion. So morning, uh, like, do you have a morning routine or anything besides kind of your 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 walking meetings? <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I'm um, I. It hasn't really, as far as scheduling goes, I've just, I've done, I haven't changed my schedule. You know, I still get up at 5, 5.30 in the morning and do my things that I need to do. Um, and, and I think having that routine and having that schedule is super important. Um, and I, even in even in the work, you know, even in my workspace, when I'm actually working from an office, I still have routines of, you know, taking breaks to read or taking breaks to walk or you know, all these other kinds of things. And so having, a, trying to maintain that routine, uh, it may sound dull, but for me, it's been really, really, you know, important that I have, you know, I know what my schedule is. I know when I'm going to do this. Um, I try and adhere to it as much as I possibly can. Um, in this world of COVID-19, like, I think the main thing for me has been is um, trying to limit the time for meetings. Because um, everybody bless them I think is trying to show that they're working so they're kind of having these big long meetings or these like repetitive things and just trying to push teams and things like that you know let's make these meetings 30 minutes long because you know keeping them snappy let's get things done so we're not kind of spending you know hours going through the rigmarole of so what are you doing during COVID-19 well it's the same thing I was doing yesterday so (laughs) we don't need to go through that um because I yeah, think that's all less. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, what you, um, which kind of wine did you have last night for dinner? Oh yeah, you know that kind of stuff. So I think having a schedule has been for me the most. Um, you know, trying to keep a schedule and trying to keep things in that space have been it's super important for me. Um, but that's that's a personal thing. I think schedules are massive uh, again for me. And outside of that, then uh, outside of kind of the, the, the I guess the routine schedule stuff. For you as a creative and for someone, you know, when looking for inspiration, I mean, do you have, do you have kind of a, a specific kind of way you do that? I mean, do you have golden hours of working or white space or, you know, you mentioned walking, but like, how do you get into that flow? Well, I mean, that for me is, is, is the morning times. I, for some reason, for me, I, I think most of the, you know, the influx of, of, of thought um, I don't want to call it creativity because somebody else has to judge whether or not it's creative, but the influx of thought for me happens in those morning sessions. That's the reason because I know in that space when I'm up early in the morning that there's, there is that space, you know, I don't have to worry about a meeting that's coming up or I don't have to worry about this or I don't have to worry about that. I can spend that time actually just kind of 
you know, allowing for those, those thoughts to flow and for the, for me to be thinking about things and, and, you know, doing some of those, again, archeological digs or mining things like that's my space and my time to do that. And so, you know, that's, you know, I think as you progress in your career, you get less time to do that. So I've always tried to maintain that time of, you know, depending on where I am or what's going on of, you know, this early morning hours just to think and be and do. And then I have, you know, I'm fortunate that I live with my partner. She's, um, she's a choreographer. So we kind of carve out some space and time to like do some creative stuff in the evening together or during the weekend and stuff like that. <clears throat> Again, it sounds quite regimented and routine, but it's just, it's the way that it works for me. I just need to be able to know that there is that time that I don't have to worry about anything. And when I don't have to worry about anything, it kind of allows for things to flow for me. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think, yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's, it's always interesting to hear from different people kind of what the recipe for inspiration is. But I think, you know, for me, it's definitely just, you just, if you're like full into something or you're reading or researching a lot of stuff online or going down a rabbit hole in, on Instagram, it's like, I find you need at least an hour, two hours of just like walking. <laughs> and it's like, it just allows your brain to process stuff. And then you come up with eureka moments. You kind of cancel things out. It's just weird how it, uh, I don't know how you can kind of get into that flow and kind of come to things, you know? And I think, I think sometimes there's quite a lot of pressure on creatives where it's like you know this is the idea this is the brief go and it's like whoa you know i remember my old creative director it's like you know you need you need to let me sit with this for like at least a week just to kind of you know you don't think i'm going to come up with something within two days it's you know you need to really work at some of this stuff if you want to build it out which is i found i started to really respect that process i think there's a couple of creative directors i've worked with that I've really, really respected for that. Like, you know, you're in that room or you're in that space where somebody's like, okay, here's what it is. Here's the brief and stuff like that. And there's like this anticipation, everybody in the room, like, okay, creative guy, press the button. Creative guy's going <laughs> to yeah. spit out ideas, you know? And I love, I've, I've had a couple of people I've worked with or worked for that I've really respected that have been like, okay, cool. And then that's it. Like, you know, like now I've got to have that time and my thinking and stuff like that, you know, and, and kind of that space to kind of, again, get into the flow and let the thoughts come. Um, and I think everybody, and I, you know, I, 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 I'm not a massive fan of, of, of creative or creatives and stuff like that, because I think everybody to a degree has to be creative to navigate through life but people who spend their time getting doing it as a job um, and are expected to do kind of that type of work. I think the ones that are really, really good at it know how to kind of create that space for the flow to happen, you know, for yeah. the flow to kind of like go through them. Um, and you can see all the, you know, the people you've probably worked with, I've probably worked with, you kind of see when they, when they get, when they're, when they're in that flow, it's quite, beautiful to see it happen it's quite impressive to watch it happen but when they're not it's really hard. oh yeah <laughs> really <laughs> uncomfortable um and lastly uh are you a tab person am i a what a tab person so on your on your google chrome or safari do you have like a hundred tabs open or are you like a clean oh, tab person um my 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 biggest the thing I dislike most is when I have to, sh when something happens and I have to shut my computer down because I always have multiple Chrome or Safaris open and I forget that I have ones <laughs> open and I shut it down and then I realize, shit, I had those open and they had things on there that I wanted to go back and look at and now they're gone. So <coughs> I am a multiple tab person. Yeah, I mean, well, I'm a multiple tab person too and I think one of my, one of my uh, buddies was, looking at my laptop, he's like, that is making me feel sick. Cause there's literally 60 tabs open. But my thing is like, I've got so many Google sheets and things and like stuff. It's like, I, what's the point of me quitting it and opening it every day? I'm, it's just like a ongoing workflow that I have, but it does give you a headache sometimes. <laughs> I, like, I actually get a bit of a buzz by going back through things and then scrolling down and going, why is this tab? Oh shit. I know. Yeah. <laughs> I love that moment. I really like that is a moment that I actually genuinely love because I'm going, 
why am I, what was I looking at? Why was I researching the foot school the other day? Like, <laughs> what was I thinking? And then I open something up and you go, and you scroll down and you see a picture and you go, oh yeah, I need that. Or, oh, my, oh yeah, that's that. Like, I, it's a genuine moment for me. I love that. Awesome. Well, Sally, that's all the time we've got today, but thank you so much for, for speaking with us. It's been great to kind of get your insight and, and learn a bit more about you, Noah. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, mate. Um, yeah, everybody be safe, and I really guys appreciate you guys uh, asking me to come on. Thanks. Cheers. Cheers, man. Thanks for listening. I hope this podcast can intrigue, inspire, and provide some key tips and tricks for a lot of people. I would really appreciate your help to grow the community. If you know anyone that you think would enjoy this podcast, then please send it their way. And if you can subscribe and leave a review, it would mean so much and it really supports the show. Thank you and see you next week.